We turn in God's word this morning to Genesis chapter 9. We just sung those words of Psalm 8 where we see set alongside of each other how, how weak man is, how weak he is in the flesh, and yet how great uh, is his position. And so what we recognize from that is that God upholds man. So fragile is life. Though we sometimes think we are rather something special to talk about or we think ourselves something great in ourselves, we acknowledge that it is only by God's sparing of our life, by God's provision for our lives, by God's protection of our lives and his promotion of our lives that we, that we continue on and exist. We come back to Genesis chapter 9 and we consider these first seven verses this morning, familiar uh, teaching and certainly, um, I don't expect that it will be all that uh, new to us, but it is good for us to re- be reminded of it because our culture is so at odds with it and, and it. and we hear it again and again, day after day, day in and day out, of the way we are to look at life and how we are to treat life and whether it's a right uh, of ours to take life and we see here this morning very clearly that no one can take the life of another without being required to pay a reckoning and a very severe one at that. Listen to God's word this morning as he speaks to us. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man, or for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. This is the Word of God. This morning we consider this passage in the outline as follows. God's promotion of life, God's protection and provision of earthly life, God's judgment upon the murderer, and then finally God's provision for eternal life. Dear congregation, after the worldwide flood, God makes clear that he is committed to the earth, that he loves the world that he has made. He spared Noah and his family, and he makes clear to them that he wants them to repopulate the earth. John Calvin writes that he believes Noah and his sons were given this word because they had come through such a, such a wicked time where Genesis 6 tells us that all they thought was evil all the time, that because of this and because of this catastrophic judgment that they needed to be to be encouraged in this call to them once again to repopulate the earth. God would bless 
Noah and future generations. He is about promoting life. Maybe you wonder if this is the kind of world you want to bring children into today. You hear that, people say, I don't know if I want to bring children into a world like this. They're all, look at what's going on, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. These dark days cause us to look to God. They test our faith, don't they? God's command still stands, as does his blessing. Secular psychologists argue almost daily about the fact that we have too many people on the earth. They warn of overpopulation. If you've read recent surveys, this is a rather interesting survey came across recently. Apparently, apparently, according to the survey, the top question on the minds of many young couples today is, how can I responsibly think of having children in the midst of this verifiable climate crisis? That's the number one question that they're asking. Rather interesting survey. I'm not sure who took it, and I'm not sure who they asked. Well, this warning of overpopulation isn't new. In 1968, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb, in which he said that very soon there was going to be a worldwide starvation. There was going to be a starvation, he says, as we race to oblivion, quote-unquote. The book begins this way, the battle to feed humanity is over. The book predicted that hundreds of millions of people were going to starve to death because of overpopulation. Well, in part, the reason this book gained such traction in those days was it was written during a time when the family was being redefined, when the idea of whether family was positive, whether having children was a, a burden or a blessing was, was coming, to the, coming to the surface. And so it fit right in and say, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm worried really about this, this overpopulation thing that this book is talking about. Maybe it's better not to have children. He said this, many of the alarming climate events of recent decades have a common cause. Too many people taking too much from the earth, which will lead to mass starvation on a dying planet. When he was interviewed 50 years later, 2018, he was asked what he, thought, what he thought the greatest impact of his book was. Now, it was, it was far uh, more modest than I think he had in the initial writing of it. He said, yeah, he thinks that it served its purpose in that it got people to, to it, was, it was okay to talk about population control. But if you read the book, if you read the comments, it's an alarmist book. It's a book about uh, the, the, the sky is falling and, and we're the cause of it. It was much more than that. And really, the, the results are, are far more than just that we can now have conversations, if you believe him, that you can have these conversations now that you couldn't have before about population control. The result is that there have been human rights violations around the world as a result of this finding, this, this verified or this scientifically supported, this idea of taking life so that we didn't overpopulate a dying planet, as he put it. Well, what does that remind us? What does that tell us again, dear people of God? It tells us again, whenever we have new findings or new research coming out, it needs to be verified or it needs to be looked at and studied in light of what God's word teaches. What has God said? What is he, what is he teaching? And, and how is this new finding or this, this new research, how, what does it say? Is it, is it in line with God's word or does it stand against God's word? 
we must examine all of these claims in light of that great question, foundational question, what has God said? Well, after the worldwide flood, God said to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God encouraged population growth, and he still does today. He values life. He values the spreading out of humanity. He also values creation care. We don't want to be irresponsible. We must act responsibly toward creation, unless we're misunderstood in speaking this way. Population growth does call for careful management of resources, development of new resources which God has placed in the world for us to discover. And he is the one who is to be praised for these discoveries. God loves people. That was the understanding in the Christian West for centuries. The West understood that God was was calling all nations to populate the earth. Yet present population growth in the West is in decline. Human beings are not reproducing, or they are reproducing, but not fast enough to replace themselves. And that's a problem for the future. We're do we see the future? Now, this data leads many to sigh, a great sigh of relief, even to celebrate. Good. The world can't take anymore. And yet, we must not forget God's word found here in Genesis chapter 9. He doesn't warn that there's going to be overpopulation. He, in fact, says he's going to He sees to it that there is promotion of life, that he is going to protect and to provide for life, that he's going to defend life against those who would seek to take it. Kevin DeYoung's written a recent uh, an article recently called "The Case for Kids," in which he makes the statement: "The human race seems to have grown tired of itself." And the argument of the article is not that bigger families are are more blessed or more valued than smaller families or those that have no children. But he does argue that having children is not an environmental evil, as we are so often hearing today. Having children does entail sacrifice. It does entail a, a, an organization of resources. But it shouldn't keep humanity from having children. He states in the article, no doubt there are various reasons for declining fertility. It is not just that we are tired of ourselves. There are financial considerations, fertility issues, health limitations. But fertility doesn't plummet as it has unless there are deeper issues at play. We live in a more prosperous and a healthier time than any time in history. Individuals make their choices for many reasons, but as a species, we are suffering from a profound spiritual sickness in which children seem a burden on our time and a drag on our pursuit of happiness. It's, a, it's really quite an interesting article. I think it's worth uh, your time to read it, The Case for Kids by Kevin DeYoung. 
What we see here in the book of Genesis, not just in chapter 9, but in the opening book of the Bible, God loves marriage. And he loves children. His call, his command for humanity is to multiply. Yet our government seems convinced that it needs to shrink the population. It's doing all in its power to protect the right to kill rather than to promote life. It's tasked with protecting the life of the least, protecting the life of those most vulnerable, least able to defend themselves, and not to set a growth standard for the country. But when we understand that the Bible, what we understand from the Bible is that God, the that faith is connected to childbearing as well. It's, it's, it's a part of childbearing. There's faith involved. Faith in God gives us excitement about children. We think, well, the Lord will provide. Here he's, he says, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm promoting it. I'm saying, fill the earth and subdue it. I will protect. I will provide. And I will, I will punish those who stand against life. So it's... Faith in God gives us excitement about children, for in them God connects us to the future. Having children also can help us have eyes of faith. How often are young children reminding us of that childlike faith that we've lost because we've been caught up in all the arguments and discussions and and ways of calculating and and overthinking and overanalyzing. They accept his promises without hesitancy or qualification. Father told me this week, Father from this congregation told me this week, he says, my son often will pray for a, for a hurt arm or for a, a, a scrape. And when the healing happens, he says, God healed my arm. God took care of the scrape. He healed the bruise. How often don't we give little thought to that? And the, our children remind us that God is the one who does this. He does this and much more every day. He heals. Well, family life has shown to be a positive encouragement to religious life as well. I've heard non-church-going parents say many times, we want to find a church for our son or daughter to grow up in. It's important for them. Kevin DeYoung writes in his article to support that, the presence of children often drives parents to church, whether for help in raising them or because the experience of creating children helps us apprehend our creator. We could add many other reasons to this, but those are the ones he gives. It's been demonstrated in other books and articles that family decline in our culture has led to a decline in religion. It was in decline of religion was in large part because of loss of family. Now, I don't want to make these findings say too much, but they should remind us that God works in families. He works in church families as we recognize responsibility for each other. I don't know what else to do about the mic. It just seems to keep scratching.
these verses, I always wondered, why do the animals, don't, why don't they want to come to me? I used to like to watch the birds. Children, I used to like to watch them come to the feeder, and I wanted them to eat out of my hand. And I thought, why won't they come and eat out of my hand? Well, the Bible tells us here why. God has placed a fear of humanity in the animals. They don't come near. God put a fear of man in them. He puts a fear of man in all the animals. Things changed from the days of Adam when he had them, the animals parading in front of them and he gave names to each of them where he could walk with the animals and not be threatened by them. But now, because of the fall, many of them became violent and God placed a fear of man into them. For what reason? To protect us. To protect us. Because he wants life, human life, protected. God did something else here to provide for humanity. He declared that man could eat the animals along with the plants of the earth. He provided them for food that we might be able to have other means by which to gain nutrition. He gave these resources to men. God is pro-life. Well, then we see how God is pro-life as we read of the severe penalty he lays out against murder. He says that he will require the life of any animal that kills a person. Verse 5, there at the beginning, And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. Later in the giving of the law to the people of God, he, he has that codified, he has that written down in the law. In Exodus 21, we read, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But... If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owners also shall be put to death. God sets a severe penalty for death caused by an animal. There's also severe penalty against any man who takes the life of another man. God says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From your, and this is the word in Hebrew, from your brother man, it's translated in the ESV, fellow man, but from your brother man, this one who is your brother, who is to be your brother's keeper, to keep your brother, from your brother man, I will require reckoning for murder. Murder brings severe penalty. He says it three times there. I will require a reckoning. I will require it. I will require a reckoning. And what is that reckoning? Whoever sheds the blood of man, verse 6, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God gives authority to man to put murderers to death. It's designed to restrain the violence that, that grew from Cain to Lamech and, and beyond, where there was, where there was this aggressive murderous attitude in humanity that was growing until Genesis 6 when it said they were so evil and so wicked God couldn't take it anymore. There are categories meant to protect and to to give uh, guidelines in murder trials today because life is so important. God says there are categories we want to be careful to not put one to death recklessly. There's first degree murder, there's second degree murder, there's felony murder, there's Voluntary manslaughter, there's involuntary manslaughter. First degree murder, malicious premeditated murder, bears the severest penalty. 
calls for the death of the murderer. The reason is given at the end of verse 6, for God made man in his own image. It sets before us the dignity of all human life. The value of human life is not measured on a sliding scale based upon cognitive ability, the level of self-awareness or out-of-womb viability and all of the other things we hear tossed around today to somehow define life or value. Human life has value because people are made in the image of God. What do we do with the punishment of crime? Well, there are many uh, directives given in the Old Testament. There was one principle, however, that was laid out called the lex talionis, the law of equivalent retaliation. You know the one, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was to indicate that no punishment was was to be worse than the crime. It was to fit the crime. Jesus refers to that law. He refers to it in Matthew 5.38. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But he says, that isn't how it is to be among you. You're not to be about uh, going, seeking revenge, doing something worse to the perpetrator of the crime. As Lamech did for a young man who, who wounded him, he killed him. It was out of proportion. It was not right. It was inequitable. Jesus refers to this and says, you, are not, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He was encouraging Christians who are now uh, renewed by God's Spirit to show kindness, to show forgiveness, to show mercy. That is our command. We are not to seek revenge. It is the Lord's to repay. Well, what do we do then with this idea of capital punishment? Is Jesus at odds with Paul when Paul says in Romans 13 that the state has been given the sword to carry out justice? Well, we understand a distinction there, don't we? It is the states to carry out justice and not the individual. It's not up to us to take revenge for, uh, on an individual basis. We are to leave that to the state. They've been entrusted with that sword to carry out justice. And they are to carry it out without consideration for emotion. They're to carry it out equitably, consistently. Emotion cannot lead to inconsistent application of the law. Paul writes, the state is the minister of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The state does not bear the sword in vain, but uses it to protect the good. So the state is the avenger who carries out God's wrath, even to the severest of crime. And when a person murders an image bearer of God, this is high treason against God, for he alone gives and takes life. The state has the God-given authority to execute the murderer. The individual does not. One of the main purposes of the state being created by God is for the punishment of evildoers. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's the basic foundation for the state. Well, one commentator says, as we speak of and think about capital punishment, the 
execution of the murderer. It stands to reason that to be anti-capital punishment is miscalculated philanthropy, miscalculated man-love, or a misplaced humanitarianism that is unbiblical. Why? Because God is merciful, but he's also just. And his mercy never compromises his justice. That is lost in our culture today to a large degree, and it leads to a very violent society. We don't want to press that too far, but we want to recognize that the state does have that authority and needs to execute it in keeping with God's command for the protection of life. Capital crime requires a heavy sentence from the state. Now that said, what is the church's responsibility? What is the church's responsibility to those who have been convicted of such crimes? We are not to be anti-life. While that person lives, we are to go with the life-changing word of the gospel. The church must visit those imprisoned for such sin and for other sins, proclaiming the grace and mercy of God to forgive even the worst of sinners. The Holy Spirit can use the gospel to bring life to the one dead in sin. The church is pro-life. She speaks the life-giving gospel. Sin does have consequences. But the final forever judgment comes not from man, but from God. We must tell others that God came to the mass of murderous humanity of which we are a part to deliver us from what we deserve, from the punishment that we deserve. We are now set free to live and to tell the glorious goodness of God in Jesus Christ. God has provided life forevermore in him. That's the message that we bear as Christians, as people of God. As we close in this sermon this morning, we recognize that there's no time in history when all is peace For humanity, when all is calm, when there is a perfect world in which to bring children or in which to live. But there is no time where God does not say, fill the earth and subdue it. Work for good. Execute justice. Show mercy. Even in the Babylonian exile, God said to his people, get married, have sons and daughters, build homes, plant gardens, settle down, press on, seek the welfare of the city, pray to the Lord on its behalf. And we are by God's power to do just that, to be faithful and to be fruitful all the days of our lives as we speak life into the community. May God help us to do that. Amen. Father in heaven, as we consider this passage on life and also the warning against taking life, may our reflection be upon the wondrous truth of the gospel that though we deserve death, you have shown mercy to us and executed justice upon your son who bore our sins. And if we believe in him, we, might, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. May we be quick to speak of that message, to show kindness, to show love. May the state execute justice against the evildoer and promote that which is good. That in this fallen world, 
we might have a power and authority that helps the good to flourish and protects against the wicked or the evil. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.